Well, as Allie shared earlier, we have entered into the season of Lent, and this is the first Sunday um, where we begin. Uh, we began on Ash Wednesday, um, thinking through our own mortality, and we spend the 40 days kind of journeying with Jesus to the cross um, and the hope of our immortality that we get to celebrate um, as believers in Christ at Easter. So each week during this series in Lent, we're going to have a reflection on Jesus' suffering, what he encountered um, on his journey to the cross. And I get to share the first one of those with you this morning. And it'll be from uh, Matthew 16, where Jesus predicts his death to his disciples. But before I get to the passage, I wanted to back up to what precedes it um, in the text, in the chapter of Matthew 16. And the first thing that happened... um, kind of almost right before Jesus predicts his death, was the Pharisees and the Sadducees had asked Jesus to show them a sign from heaven in order to either test him or to indeed um, trap him in his words or to see that he was who he really was. So they're basically saying, prove who you are to us uh, or we're not, not going to change our ways and our thinking. And Jesus responds to their demand for a sign with this in verse 4. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So now the sign of Jonah is referring to the restoration of the Old Testament prophet Jonah, who had hoped to avoid the suffering associated with a difficult assignment from God, but ended up three days and nights in the belly of a great fish before God delivered him from his imminent death. And the second thing that happened just prior to Jesus predicting his death to his disciples was the conversation that Jesus had with them about who they thought he was. Now, to Peter's credit, he answered correctly in verse 16 with, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus commends him, saying, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So there is a sight or an understanding that comes from the Father. Humans or flesh and blood cannot impart it. So now we arrive at our passage for today, which is Matthew uh, chapter 16, verses 21 through 23. And you can follow along with me on the screen. From that time on, and that is after they had confirmed who Jesus was, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So that exchange may remind you of Jesus' interaction with the devil when he was in the wilderness after his baptism. The devil tempted Jesus with another way, an easier way, a self-promoting way, a self-fulfilling way. And like Peter, the devil knew exactly who Jesus was, yet Peter was blind. He knew Jesus, but he didn't see God's plan. Peter was blinded by his own expectations, blinded by what people were wanting and expecting of Jesus in the immediate, blinded by years of waiting and anticipating divine retribution for their oppression, and maybe even blinded by their own desire to be seen as right in the eyes of the Romans and the world around them. 
And Jesus' sign to to the disciples and to the world was the same that he offered to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the sign of Jonah, by willingly taking on suffering, which is death to self, followed by his physical death, and after three days, resurrection. That is the sign that they would know that Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus knew what he had come to do, and it wasn't going to be easy just because he was God. He, similar to Jonah, didn't want to experience the suffering of the assignment at hand. And as we know from his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, he had asked the Father that the cup be taken from him, that if there could be another way. And yet he chose the Father's path, God's will laid out for him, and all the suffering that it entailed, being delivered into the hands of men, condemned to death, and mocked, and flogged, and crucified. Would you pray with me? Father, you know our suffering. You know the suffering represented in the room this morning. And by Jesus' example, you have shown us the way of dying to self, of living a life surrendered to you, Jesus, you are the only path to everlasting life. And it is also you alone who can move us from blindness to sight. So open our eyes to see you as Andrew brings your word this morning. Would you lead him and may your living water flow through him as he teaches. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 I'll actually take that for a second. Yeah, I'll get it back to you. Um. Before I start the message, this, I want to thank so many people that just entered into Holy Week uh, on Wednesday and Thursday. We had uh, 60 people come through for the Ash Wednesday from 5 a.m. to 9 a.m. We had uh, 40 hours consecutive prayer in our prayer room starting at 5 a.m. to the next day. We had over 50 people. It might be a record for upper room uh, that evening that, that came and went from that. So thank you uh, for praying. In the prayer room, for those of you who've, who've not been, during this season, we have uh, the, the churches from the Sunday Network, who will, the leadership will be gathering here this week, and so you can be praying for those churches. There's some specific prayer requests, um, and I would encourage you to do that. The other thing about the prayer room uh, is that it, what we're doing is we are praying for the suffering of the world, and there's a global map, and you can pray for the country you want to pray for and pin it as a sign that you're praying for them. Um, And so I want you to consider doing that. And today we have some Ukrainian refugees and immigrants here, including uh, a family who hasn't been here before, but a, a family from our church sponsored their family getting here, these refugees getting here. So can the Gehis, am I saying it right? Gazette. Gazette. Could that family stand first? Yeah. Can we welcome them here? All right. It's hard to see. There's nine kids in that row for that family, so a big family. And what I'd like to do, Antone, could you come up and pray? Is it going to matter where this mic goes, Jim? Can it go right here? Antone, could you translate? I'm going to pray, but I'd like you to, to translate so that they... Ex- the people that aren't speaking English as well can 
can understand the prayer. And I'd like all of us to extend. So in my mind, what came to my mind um, that when I saw that they were here this morning is that we are praying for those suffering in the world. So we want to pray for these people who are here, but we want to especially pray for Ukraine uh, and the situation over there today. So I will, I'll pray and pause, and then you can translate, all right? Would you extend a hand towards, towards the families there? God, we thank you for these families from Ukraine. We thank you how you've watched over them and have a plan for them. We thank you for how we've been blessed by this community. By their generosity and their faith and their courage. За то, что они приехали сюда, за их веру и надежду. И мы молимся за новые семьи, которые могут приехать сюда. И ты обеспечил все, что им необходимо. И мы молимся сегодня за страну Украина. И мы молимся за страну Россия and all the, the countries in that region. We ask that you would bring peace. We pray for those whose lives have been shattered, who are no longer in their homes, who no longer have jobs, who are, whose lives are at risk, которые жизни прерваны. И мы молим тебя обеспечим всем, что необходимо. Мы особенно молимся за христиан в Украине. Чтобы они показали себя, что они там есть. И они были для всех очевидны that they would be light in a dark place. And we pray for those in Ukraine who don't know you. That you would become real to them. That many of them would come to know Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Again, we thank you for these people who are here with us today. And we ask your blessing on them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you. Thank you. So far. So, what I'd like to do, we're as Camille mentioned, we are going to take a few minutes to reflect on a different aspect of Christ's suffering during these six Sundays of Lent. And, and that will happen before the message. And then our message is going to be primarily about sexuality. We're going to talk about uh, issues of sexuality, our sexuality, how we live out our sexuality. And um, I'd like to let you know what's coming. So here's the next five Sundays. Again, there's going to be a reflection on an aspect of Jesus' suffering, and we're going to talk about an aspect of, of sexuality. So Jesus suffered by being abandoned, and we are going to talk about singleness and isolation. 
Jesus suffered by being misunderstood and slandered, and we are going to talk about trans and gender stereotypes. Jesus suffered by being betrayed, and we are going to talk about divorce and cohabitation. Jesus suffered by being rejected and condemned, and we're going to talk about LGB and same-sex attraction. Jesus suffered, well, and then today, what, we talked, what Camille talked about was Jesus suffered by being tempted. Um, she gave, I got to see her notes, and I thought she framed it so well when she said, the devil tempted Jesus with another way an easier way, a self-promoting way, a self-fulfilling way. Jesus didn't just have a bad day on the cross, a bad 24 hours leading up to that. He knew this was coming for a long time, and there was the temptation to just not go that way, and yet he knew and walked right towards his suffering for us. So as we talk about these different areas of, of Um, sexuality, we will also come back to, I think, at least most weeks, how does Jesus' suffering play into all of this? So, uh, today, well, let me just give a few, let me make a few comments first. In talking about sex, here is some, some things I'm aware of. I'm aware that for at least the last decade, especially the younger generation, has left the church not come to the church. Many people have said, I don't want anything to do with the church because in their view, the church is anti-sex, anti-gay, anti-LGBTQ. And so they don't need that. I'm also aware of, of uh, in more rigid settings, of the way in which people have to, um, or have been, what's the word I'm looking for? exposed, shamed, picked on over sexual sin. So there are multiple people from our church, who've been part of our church, who got pregnant as a teenager, and not at this church, but at a different church, had to stand up front, in front of the whole group, and confess their sin. Sometimes just the woman, or young teenage gal, not the guy. I'm... Even, I mean, and that was not all that out of of common. Even a pastor I I know well who is not at all rigid and very gracious. I remember about 15, 20 years ago, I'm first becoming a pastor, learning about being a pastor, and he told me about a wedding he did where the, the bride was pregnant, and he said, you know, I always point out the sin in those weddings. But at this, it was like a big step. At this wedding, I'm not going to do that. But he had felt he was kind of uncomfortable because he felt obligated to do that because that's what was normal. I'm aware of, at this church, a couple still married who goes here, who many years ago, she got pregnant uh, as, a, as a high schooler, I believe as a high schooler, not married, and how wasn't very connected to God or Jesus, and Pastor Gary ministered with such grace to this couple that they came to follow Jesus and they've been a committed part of Celebrate Church ever since. So I'm thinking about that contrast. 
I'm also, in the last year, have read several books. I don't want to exaggerate, but at least four or five, at least four or five, I think more than that, books just on LGBT, TQ, and listening to a reading story after story of a person who starts sharing with the church that they're having same-sex attraction or whatever they would, um, whatever struggle they have, and the church's response being condemning, being get out, being cruel. So I'm aware of all of that. In fact, as I looked ahead, you know, a few months out, that is what's right here, is how poorly the church has treated people um, in their sexual sin and particularly LGBTQ people. But as the series got closer, and I, and I think especially as we get into those specific Sundays, I will reflect more on that and talk more about that. But as we got closer to this series, there is another thing I notice and would say is true. And that is that maybe because of those things, we are less and less aware of what the Bible actually says about sex. And we actually don't want to say what it says about sex if someone's um, living a different way. I don't want anyone to feel worse. I don't want to bring on shame. I don't want to be uncomfortable or make people uncomfortable. I don't want to give the impression that the church is anti-gay, anti-sex, and so I say less and less and less. And meanwhile, there are all sorts of messages going out about what's true about sexuality, about what's true about how we live it out. And I don't think those match up. And when, so now it's come to the point where when if I actually would say something to a person who says, I believe in Jesus, about what Jesus or the Bible says about sexuality, there's a way in which it is, the response is like, how dare you? That's not the right thing to, you can't say that. You can't tell me. So today, I want to especially lean into a lot of what the Bible actually says, because one of the things that I, I hear a lot, and it's in response to something that's true, which is the, the church in general, me, to a certain extent, for sure, has been inconsistent, has been like picked on sexual sin in a different way than other sins, or treated people differently, or acted like they're worse, or whatever, those kinds of things. And we don't want to do that. But what I hear a lot is, all sin is the same. And I just want us to listen to God's word this morning. And here are the consequences of sin the same. It doesn't make someone a better or worse person a better or worse sinner than someone else. We're all standing in the same spot on the cross. We're all in this together. But I think there is actually some ways in which God says, there's something unique about this. 
And for the sake of time, I'm not going to get into some of the reasons why I think that's true this Sunday. I will explain it in future Sundays. But that's what we're going to talk about. So let's just start with what is God's ideal? What is God's ideal? If we are followers of Jesus, if we're Christians, if he's our Lord, which means he's in charge, which means we're following him, which means we're saying he knows what's best, what does he say? So let's start there. Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. Jesus is being asked about divorce. Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So if we go back to verse 4, when he quotes the Creator made them male and female, he is quoting Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter in the whole Bible. And the people he's talking to would know the whole thing. They wouldn't, they wouldn't just pay attention to the two word, three words he quoted. They would know the whole context. And I'm going to talk more about that context uh, in weeks to come, which would also explain why sex is a little bit different. It's not just like everything else we do. But I'm going to save that in verse. But, but I do want to point out, when Jesus is asked about issues that have to do with marriage and sexuality, he says, go right back to the very beginning of what the Bible says when God created human beings, because it's right there, and that's still what's true. We need to go back to the very beginning, because this isn't just another issue, another... This is built into how he made us as human beings, from the beginning. Next verse, he quotes chapter 2 of Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Again, he's, he's drawing on this is what God said about human beings, about sexuality from the beginning, and that's what he's going with. And verse 6 now, this is just him. He says, I affirm that. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. What does two becoming one flesh mean? There's two things. One is, this is about marriage. It's about two people, separate families, separate lives, becoming one unit, one family, lifelong covenant. What the rest of the Old Testament and then the New Testament would enforce is that it's about being one lifelong covenant commitment between a man and a woman. There it is, marriage. It is also about two people coming together sexually. It's like worship. If I say, hey, and now the message is done, we're going to go to a time of worship, what I mean when I say it like that is a time of worshiping God through music. And that's totally appropriate to say that. But, music, but we're in a whole worship service. Like we're worshiping when we're giving attention to his word, when we're praying, when we're offering our gifts. All of those are acts of worship as well. Big umbrella worship. In fact, our whole lives we're supposed to live to the glory of God. We can ascribe worth to God. We can worship him in everything we do. So there's this big umbrella worship. But sometimes we talk about worshiping with music 
And that is a, an expression. Well, same thing with two becoming one. There's the big umbrella, marriage, and then there's having sex itself, and both are talking about a similar reality. But the sex itself, what's been reinforced all the way through the Bible, is that sex is designed to be within marriage. That's the design. That's what Jesus would say. Now, Jesus does not talk tons about sex. He talks tons about money. He talks a lot about heaven and a lot about hell. He doesn't talk a lot about sex. But what we know is that he is very forgiving and gracious that people who were... Uh, had sexual histories, felt comfortable being with him, that he was not ashamed to be, identify with people with sexual histories, which is a big, bigger deal back then than it is for us now. So I think because that's all true, we can sometimes miss uh, that he, when he does talk about sex, he is reinforcing what was always said. And his audience, his people are Jewish people. They aren't debating these topics. They aren't debating where the lines are. So let's read one section of what Jesus says. From chapter 5, verse 27 of Matthew, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. I just want to make a few observations. Verse 27, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery because that's who the people he was talking to. That is not the, we do not always get that message in this day and age. You watch a show in this day and age, and this guy is not the greatest guy, but this guy that she's married to, but this guy is, and you, the story itself kind of gets you to root for the affair, to root, to in your heart be like, this is what would be best. And again, in that context, there wasn't a question of whether adultery was right or wrong or sex outside of marriage was right or wrong. The question was, so if we find someone in adultery, do we stone them to death or not? So that's why Jesus doesn't talk about it more in terms of explaining where it's at. You've heard it said to the people he's talking to. Now, one thing that he deals with a lot is the double standard between men and women. I have to get to that in another another Sunday, but it comes out here a little bit. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now he's not saying, well, all sin's the same. So if you've sinned in your heart, then you might as well go ahead and do it. Go ahead and commit adultery. I mean, because if he's saying that, then he's probably also saying just before this, so if you get angry, it's the same as murder, so you might as well go kill people. It'd be the exact same thing. No one. But where it starts is here. And it affects people if it's going on in here. If, if I notice somebody and they're attractive and I feel, oh, wow, I'm a, that's an attractive person, that is not lust, according to this. It is looking with the intent to lust. It is feeding it. 
So just to not overdo like every guilt ourselves for everything, what do we choose to do with our minds? What do we choose to do with our minds? And if we look at the intent of that, it's like committing adultery with the heart. And here's what it does. It dehumanizes people. It dehumanizes them. They're no longer human beings. They're objects for my self-fulfillment. And that affects, if you take a, if you do an MRI or whatever the brain scan is of a heroin addict, well, first, if you do the normal brain, the heroin addict brain, the porn addict brain, the heroin addict brain and the porn addict brain look alike. It does impact us. And it does impact the way we relate. Now, verse, I won't keep going through verses like that. Jesus says, you right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Right hand causes to cut it off. That's not actually, he's not actually telling us to do that. That won't actually solve the issue. If I've got it mentally in my mind, I can be blind and still recall it and bring it up. But what he's saying is, that's how big of a deal it is. What are we going to look at all the time? What kind of shows are we going to watch on TV? We may want to chuck a TV out the window. That might do a little bit more good than cutting off or plucking out. Why? It is, the, it is not good for our souls. It can lead us down a path that's bad for our eternal souls. I think he, what he does mean is if you, it would be better to pluck out your eye or cut off your hand than go to hell. It would be better than that. And so if feeding lust causes that, then we want to do everything we can to not feed lust. All right. Let me, did we bring up the ideal yet? And then I'm going to just start cruising. To become one. Let me read this quote. One thing I'm not going to get to because of time, is how much God, sex is God's idea. God thinks sex is a good thing. Just, I don't want to, it's just, he says it's good to be contained. I mean, fire is good. Fire in a fireplace is wonderful. It's warm. Back in the old days, you could cook with it. There's all kinds of things if you kept it in the fireplace. If you just start fires in your house, anywhere, the whole thing burns down. Anyway, somebody wrote that. I thought that was really clever. Anyway, sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. That's a quote from Timothy Keller. So the challenge to the ideal that Jesus says to become one. That means to become one in marriage. What's mine is yours and yours is mine. We're doing life together and we're committed to it for the rest of our lives. To be is where to become one sexually. That's where it's to happen. Not outside of that. So sexual immorality in the Bible, the Greek word pornea, where we get pornography, is always talking about any sex outside of marriage. Whether that's single people, whether that's married people, it's always sex outside of marriage. So, here's what I want to do the rest of the way. I just want to read passages from the New Testament about sexual immorality. And let you reflect on, is it just the same? Because in the rest of the New Testament, it's not talking to just Jewish people. 
It's talking to people in the Roman world, in the Roman Empire. And there, things are up for grabs. In fact, in our society, mostly 90-some percent, although it's not lived out this way, we say, well, as long as it's consensual. In the Roman Empire, they didn't even say that. Slave? Then that's totally okay. You're married, you got a slave? That's fine. Children? Teenage, young teenagers, that's fine. Go back and read Greek and Roman, how they operated. They said that was okay. And Christians lived in a countercultural way according to how God said it, which was to become one, you have it in there. That's it. Now things that are very normal to us in the West came from when Christians counterculturally change things upside down, including how women are treated. Here we go. Romans. I'm going to go through quite a few passages. I'm going to try not to make too many comments. Romans 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Though they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles." So because they weren't saying, God, you're God, we will, we will acknowledge your way is the best way. What did he do? The wrath, how was the wrath of God revealed? Being revealed. Verse 24, then God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever to be praised. The wrath of God is being revealed right now. How? He's saying, okay, you, we'll just let you do your desires. And watch what happens to society. We have a number of law enforcement people in the room. Talk to them about what they see as we just let it turn over to people's desires. There is more about sexual sin that I'm skipping. There is another paragraph that lists different sins, so it's not just about sexual sin, but verse 32 says, Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but approve of those who practice them. Now, how does the church respond when people who say they're Christians say they're following Jesus and are with us are operating outside of it. Chapter 5, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. 
Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slander, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Chapter 6, verse 12, he goes on to say, I have the right to do anything. That's what they're saying. You say, but not everything is beneficial, I say. I have the right to do anything, you say, but I will not be mastered by anything, is what I say. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee, run as fast as you can in the opposite direction from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, this says there's something unique about sexual sin and how it affects us in our being. But I also think it says there is something about how it affects the body. It's talking about the temple of Christ. It's talking about we are members of the body of Christ. Sexual sin also has a different impact on the body than other sins do. Sexual, sometimes there's a, some people have a sense of it's just sex. I mean, it's just sex. I think we're overdoing it about just sex as if it's just a physical, physiological thing. But it's clearly emotional and psychological coming together too, and spiritual, which is why pagan temple worship would have prostitutes as part of their worship, because there is a spiritual component to sex. It's also why in our day, sex and romance takes on like religious elements, because there is a spiritual element along with the physical got to keep going. I've, I've skipped some. I'm crossing some out. Galatians, I just want you to know that Paul, who's writing those last things, is not a legalist. The book of Galatians is completely about legalism. And he is passionate about, it's not about a bunch of rules. 
It is about the grace of Jesus. Don't make you, them do a bunch of rules. He says, you know, one of their rules then was circumcised as a sign that you're part of God's people. He says, the people that are telling you to do that, I wish they'd go emasculate themselves. That's in the Bible. He is so passionate about not being legalistic. And yet, here's what he says. Chapter 5, verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, not bound by a bunch of rules. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you'll be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you, do, you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. First and foremost, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. In Ephesians, um, no, we'll read the whole thing. 4.17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. With hardened hearts, having lost all sensitivity, they give themselves over to sensuality so that they indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. This is what he's insisting in the Lord. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him accordance with the truth that is, what, that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Down to verse, chapter 5, verse 3. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Colossians 3, 5, 7 says... Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in this way of life, in, the life, in these ways, in the life you once lived. Then it goes on to list a bunch of other sins. But it says, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. People wondering, what's God's will for my life? Should I stick with this person? Should I not stick with this person? Should I... It is God's will that you should be sanctified. It is God's will that you should avoid sexual immorality. 
that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. As we told you and warned you before, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Hebrews 13, verse 4, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. 2 Peter Two, again, I've crossed out several of these, but we've only got a few left. Second Peter 2, 13 and 14, they will be, he's talking about false teachers. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in, the ple- in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. These people are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit. A sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. Two more. Jude, starting with verse 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. And then lastly, Revelation chapter 2, Jesus speaks to seven churches, five of which he rebukes. There's a rebuke in it. And two of those five, the rebuke has a lot to do with sexual immorality. I'm going to read one of those two. So this is Jesus talking to the church in Thyatira and to all churches following the example of Thyatira. Nevertheless, I have this sin against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering And I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds.
So I think, or I have thought, that by not bringing these things up very often, I am loving other people. Whether I bring them up or not, what I just read is what God says. So is it loving for us to not encourage or promote how God says to live out our sexuality? Or to even in some ways discourage people from living out how God says to live out their sexuality. I'm pretty sure you haven't heard almost any of these passages preached on by me in 12 years. Some of them, but not many. And then a whole generation gets raised up by what social media, by what television, by what they say, this is how you live out sexuality. I don't think that's good. So how do we respond? I don't think we should respond by saying, you have no right to tell me how to do sexuality. But can I also say, we have no right to be judging each other. It's perfect. You could, the tension in the room, we needed a little levity. We needed a little levity, thank you. We are all broken sexually. We are. We are all broken sexually. And one of our ways to deal with it is to make it seem like it's not a very big deal. But the the pain that comes from our brokenness sexually, it just goes. It just goes. And so I don't think we help each other by just saying, whatever we want, go for it. So let, I'll, I was two more things, and then we'll have the worship team come up. One is, can we think about how does Jesus respond to our brokenness and sexuality? And he says, I will suffer for you. I will I love you so much. I will suffer for you to help restore you in your brokenness. I will do whatever it takes for you. I will suffer for you. I will suffer for you. 
He was tempted in every way just as we are. He was a sexual person. But he had it contained into celibate singleness because he wasn't going to get married. That was one of the things that he chose. But more than that, he chose the cross. So how would I like us to respond as a church? I would like this. I would like us just to acknowledge that we're in a room that's filled with people who are porn addicts, who've been abused, who've done abusing, who've committed adultery, who are committing adultery, who are living together outside of marriage, who are selfish in their marriage sexually, who are demanding, who are maybe abusive in the marriage, who have had all kinds of trouble controlling their desires. That's who we are. That's who we are. We are in it together. We're in it together, and we, I cannot figure it out by myself. You guys cannot figure it out by yourself. We need him. And he comes to us and says, bring me your brokenness. The response isn't to say, it's no big whoop. The response is to say, we're broken. We need someone. So we're going to go here. We're going to take it here. And whatever we've done up to this point, we bring it here and let him deal with it. And now, Jesus, help us to live from this point forward the way you want us to live. Help us. But I would love to be part of a church where people who are struggling sexually feel like it's a safe place for them to come here that there's even people here they can share with and process with their failures or their struggles. They can do that here and they would meet grace and love, but they would also meet someone saying, here's the best way. Let's see if we can move toward that way. I would love the combination of both. Uh, yeah, how about if you can come up. Have the worship team come up. In the prayer readings that Camille picked out for Ash Wednesday, Wednesday morning, one of those, I think, seems like an appropriate way to respond. So I'm going to have her pray it, and if you agree with that in your heart, you can be praying along with her, if this fits for you. Let's pray. Jesus, here I am again, desiring a thing that were I to indulge in it, would war against my own heart and the hearts of those I love. O Christ, rather let my life be thine. Take my desires. Let them be subsumed in still greater desire for you until there remains no room for these lesser cravings. In this moment, I might choose to indulge a fleeting hunger or... I might choose to love you more. Faced with this temptation, I would rather choose you, Jesus. But I am weak, 
so be my strength. I am shadowed, be my light. I am selfish, unmake me now and refashion my desires according to the better designs of your love. Give the choice of shame or glory, let me choose glory. Given the choice of this moment or eternity, let me choose in this moment what is eternal. Given the choice of this easy pleasure or the harder road of the cross, give me grace to choose to follow you, knowing that there is nowhere apart from your presence where I might find the peace I long for. No lasting satisfaction apart from your reclamation of my heart. Let me build then, my king, a beautiful thing by long obedience, by steady progression of small choices that laid end to end would become like the stones of a pleasing path stretching to eternity and unto your welcoming arms and unto the sound of your voice pronouncing the judgment, well done. Amen.